stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Title tonight is Why Jesus? Why Jesus? And I, I'm taking this as a, an opportunity to, in the light of Easter, in the light of this passage, to consider uh, from this text the question of, of why Jesus is superior to anyone else in whom we might place our faith and our trust. What, it is, what is it about what he does that makes him far superior to, to anyone else and worthy of our allegiance and our trust? What makes his gospel better than all of the other ones? Now, I was considering this as normally around Easter time, you usually see Jesus on or a representation of Jesus on the cover of some magazine uh, with some mainstream journalistic outlet saying that there's new evidence found about Jesus and what we know about him and all those kinds of things. And I think it, sometimes Christians can feel a little bit assaulted around this time of the year uh, because there is all kinds of information flying one way or the other. And culturally, a lot of times, it, it sort of is the assumption then that, of course, the Jesus that's represented in Scripture um, is, is not the true Jesus. And so I wanted to take an opportunity tonight to consider all of that uh, from this text. Why Jesus? Uh, one modern author imagined that while Jesus was on the cross, he was filled with regret. Filled with regret about the easy and peaceful life that he could have had. Uh, that he hung on the cross imagining that he could have had a nice house in Bethany perhaps could have married uh, either of the sisters of Lazarus, Mary or Martha, a nice house, a nice family, a peaceful existence. Of course, this modern author was in so many different ways 100% wrong, right? Completely wrong, but particularly wrong in one way. Because for one who came from the glories of heaven, for one who knew what eternal, everlasting joy in the midst of creation singing his praises, uh, the one who knew that, could those kinds of things become 
a temptation for him or fill him with regret. A house in the suburbs is no temptation to a man whose first home was in the glory of heaven. And that is the home of Jesus. That's where he belongs. That's where he came from. And so when we ask the question, why Jesus, for those who believe in his name, for those who know who he is, that he's the eternal son of God, it's that simple. Jesus came from heaven. Jesus went back to heaven and he can bring us to heaven. Why Jesus? He gives us eternal life and he gives us the renewal of all things. But that question, of course, is not so easy today. And as I mentioned, it's around this time where you see all kinds of things uh, flying around this world and our culture talking about who is the real Jesus. So many people look at the evidence or what they think is the evidence and they say, I see no reason to give Jesus specifically the allegiance that he demands. Why should I say that this system of belief is better than the other ones? Who am I to say that? There's a famous atheist philosopher. His name is Bertrand Russell. Once he was asked, if you die and meet God, what will be the reason you give him for not believing in him? And he snapped back, I will tell him you did not give me enough evidence. So for many, they have this ultimate question of why should I regard the things Jesus says as worth my time? I don't see enough evidence in the world for him. Rather, in the world, I see all kinds of confirmation that I should just keep living the kind of life that I want to live. Just keep going after the joys and the pleasures in which I find the most happiness. Beyond that, you have many people in our world who will ascribe to some measure of spirituality. I've mentioned this a couple times. I think I talked about it on Friday evening. That there seems to be this resurgence in spiritual thinking. A lot of it is Eastern religions sort of recast in a Western way of thinking. And it's these kinds of folks who say, yeah, maybe Jesus had good things to say, but when you say that he is the way, the truth, the life, you have all kinds of problems. The problem that so many have is the assumption that those who commit their life to Christ without a rational basis, uh, or, or they do so without any rational basis for doing so, that their faith is a, a jump in the dark, a, a blind jump over a dark cliff. We saw this morning with the example of Thomas, it's not blind faith at all, is it? That just because we are called to believe in something that we cannot see with our eyes does not mean that it is a journey in total blindness. Faith is tied to reason. It's confirmed by reason. It's affirmed by reason. The gospel writers assume this to be the case. That's why they wrote the gospels, to place evidence in front of people about who Jesus is. They're saying, here is Jesus. Here's what he did. Here's what he taught what was done to him and what happened afterwards. This is Jesus. Believe on him. God came from heaven to earth in his son. So we're not called to blindly jump off a cliff hoping that God catches us at the bottom. That's not what our faith is all about. It's not a reach into the dark. It's not a journey in the dark. It's walking out of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. This passage that we read tonight in John 2 I believe it gives us the proper ingredients to show that not only is belief in Christ reasonable, but it's far superior to all other systems of faith that have ever been or ever will be. 
It's also appropriate to consider this passage tonight as we see that it really gained all of its meaning after the disciples remembered what Jesus had said and after he had risen from the dead. It's sort of one of those, one of those things that we understand because of and in the shadow of Easter, the resurrection. So first, the question of signs and evidence. Signs and evidence. This was always a favorite passage of mine growing up as a, as a, young, as a young boy. A lot of, I think a lot of young men like this passage because it proves that Jesus could be driven to incredible action and even in some sense intense defiance when necessary, right? To think about what he's doing in this passage, I took some measure of joy in it. Sometimes we gloss over the details. Think about what Jesus is doing here. Swinging a whip, throwing aside the contents of the tables, turning the tables over. There's no joking with what's going on here. But what's the underlying meaning of what he does when Jesus clears the temple? What is it that he's doing? It's a statement that he has authority. He's walking into the temple and he's asserting himself as one who is able to declare what is right and wrong about how people are relating to God. What can and cannot be changed. It's an enormous statement that Jesus is making here. We might call it today's lingo politically incorrect. It throws caution to the wind in regards to those who held power and sway over the things in the state of Israel. That not only would the power brokers at that time have raised their eyebrows at this, they would have been extremely angry, driven to outrage. This is more than a young preacher coming into a church and immediately changing everything he doesn't like. It's even more than uh, a king ascending to the throne and, and starting to enact all of his own laws. This is a man coming and saying, you have it wrong with God. You're doing it wrong and I have the answers. And I'm going to tell you how to do it right. So if a young carpenter is going to enter the temple and say these things, He'd better have a reason for it. So it's for that reason that in verse 18 it says the Jews demanded that Jesus give a sign in order to substantiate what he is doing. You're coming into the temple. You're saying that we're having, we have it wrong, that you have it right, that you have the answers. Give us a sign. But if we consider this demand from the Jewish leaders... We, we, we see that it really is resonant with a lot of the other similar kinds of demands in the Gospels. This kind of demand is put to Jesus again and again. Take, for instance, Matthew chapter 12. There Jesus heals a man who is both demon-possessed and he is mute. Jesus heals him. Jesus follows that up with teaching about a tree and its fruit and the coming day of judgment. So he acts with authority. And then he teaches and he speaks with power and authority. And then we read in Matthew 12, as all this transpires, the Pharisees respond to Jesus and they say this. Some of the Pharisees of the law, uh, teachers of the law, said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. It's on the heels of Jesus giving this miraculous sign and then interpreting it with his teaching. The same happens in John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Right? He, he, he has this miraculous sign 
uh, not only of his, see, before he teaches that he is the bread of life, before he proclaims that he is the bread of life, he shows that he is the bread of life. He has this miraculous feeding of the 5,000, much more than 5,000 if we were to count women and children, all of that from five loaves and two fish. Jesus says after this, I am the bread of life. He calls people to trust in him, calls people to believe in him. But we get to verse 30 of John 6, and what do we read? They say this, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? This is, this is in the shadow of Jesus feeding the 5,000. That seems like a pretty miraculous sign that they should have known that he's already given the sign to substantiate who he is and his power. We turn to our passage tonight, the same dynamic is at work. This passage comes on the heels of the miraculous sign of the wedding in Cana of Galilee. We looked at this passage a few weeks ago. We taught, uh, talked, how, talked about how it shows not only the power of Jesus, but there's the symbolic meaning of what happens there. And Jesus has the jars filled up with water in order to show that um, the time of the law has been filled up. There is this development in redemptive history that Jesus will bring about uh, to show exactly what it is that he is doing. He's bringing grace upon grace, this fullness of the kingdom, this development from the old order. It's the perfect prelude to what Jesus does in the temple. Because he's bringing this development in redemptive history. And right on the heels of that, he goes into the temple and he says, you've got it wrong. You're doing it wrong. I have the answers. You need to listen to me. And you need to listen to the things that I say because I will teach with authority. Those in the temple would have either heard of this sign by Jesus or they would have heard of other signs by Jesus. We know that Jesus was always performing signs. John says if we were to write all of them, All of the books of the world could not contain all the things that he did. We also read in verse 23 at the end of this passage that all the while he was in Jerusalem, he was doing these miraculous signs. And so they're questioning Jesus, and we ask ourselves, are they justified in their skepticism? The answer is no. They are not uh, pondering what Jesus is doing in light of who he has proven himself to be, but they are claiming Uh, that they have the right to question him just because of their own skepticism. This is the recurring theme of the Gospels. Skeptics are always staring into the face of the signs that Jesus performs and demanding another sign. They don't like the evidence that is being put before them about who Jesus is. So how does Jesus respond to all of this? He does not acquiesce to their questions or their requests. He does not blame it on the volume of the evidence that he has provided, but rather he condemns those who question him because they lack the honesty and sincerity of even examining the evidence in the first place. That's the problem with those who question Jesus in the Gospels. It's not that Jesus has not provided enough evidence to substantiate his claims of being the Son of God. It's that those who are looking at him and examining him lack the honesty and sincerity to even be able to say that they are taking an honest look at Jesus. Jesus says in in the Gospels, no sign will be given to this wicked generation. Remember, he says that. Though Jesus is something greater than Solomon, though he's greater than Moses, though he's greater than Jonah, 
he was ignored because people had no interest in being convinced of who he was. This is important for us to understand as we think about our own world today. And even in Jesus' day, uh, it was littered with people who had no interest in being convinced of who he was. I heard uh, one apologist author put it this way when he was discussing the evidence that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. And he said this, when people are thinking about Jesus and all the claims he made regarding being the Son of God, he said that intent is prior to content. In other words, if you come to the evidence about Jesus and you're not doing it with any honesty or sincerity, you can't look at the evidence and say, he has not provided enough evidence to show me he's the Son of God. To show me that what, the message that he preached is superior to all of the other ones. If you're going to be sincere and honest, have an examination of who Jesus is, then you need to do it carefully and honestly understanding the, the, the measure of the significance of the signs that he performs. You know, I've dialogued with some people about the faith and try to do it regularly and often. And it's amazing to me, in the, the world in which we live, you talk to people and they seem to have all of these opinions about Jesus. And saying, well, you know, he taught this or that, and, uh, and I just don't, I, I don't believe that he has all of the answers to the meaning of life. And I'll say, can you tell me how you came to that conclusion? Can you tell me what, which of the Gospels you actually read to be able to make your case that, that Jesus is not the Son of God? And time and time and time again, people say, well, I've never, I've never really read any of the Gospels. So you've never, read, you've never read any of the Gospels, but you think that you've been able to make this case that Jesus is not the Son of God and that he did not give sufficient evidence for it. You see, intent is prior to content, isn't it? And in our world, there are all kinds of claims being thrown around about Jesus. He's not the Son of God. He's not this. He's not that. He's not the way, the truth, and the life. And it's not true because just as in Jesus' day, they're lacking the sincerity and honesty to actually see the signs that he gave, to see the evidence that he gave, and to weigh that in light of reality. And they refuse to do that. Intent is prior to content. One atheist philosopher put it this way. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. To someone who thinks this way, is any amount of evidence going to do? Is any amount of evidence going to convince them? No. The same was true in Jesus' day. The demand for a sign always came on the heels of a sign itself. So the fault lies with the examiner, not with the one who is being examined. We're reminded of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man dies and he's in Hades and he's in pain, he's in torment. And, and he's begging for someone to go to the, the, the house of his family. He's saying, please, someone go to my house and tell my family that, that they need to be, uh, be, become a part of the kingdom of God. And the answer is brought back to him that they have the scriptures. They have, that they have enough to be able to believe. And remember at the end of that story, there's that, that uh, the hallowing remark that if they do not believe the scriptures, even if someone is raised from the dead, they will not believe. 
So, that's the question of signs and evidence. Intent is prior to content. And that's not the way that those uh, who are examining Jesus were operating. They were not operating with sincerity and honesty and seeing the power of his signs. So how does Jesus respond to their lack of sincerity? He says something that shows the condition of the human heart. He exposes the condition of the human heart. The question is put to Jesus and he gives the answer, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The point is, of course, they misunderstand what Jesus is saying. They believe he's speaking of the temple, the the, the physical temple, the building, that which he has just cleared of all of the money changers. Why do they think like this? They think like this because of what Jesus exposes, that their hearts, their minds are bound to the earth. They're plagued by pride, which separates them from God. They're plagued by sensuality, which binds them to the earth. They're blinded from the ability to see beyond themselves to the God whom they truly need. So Jesus exposes the condition of their heart. The irony is that in Jesus' statement, he is pointing them to the exact thing that they will be unable to see, which is that what he really offers is something deeper and more meaningful than anything they could find in the world. Jesus is pointing it to them. He's bringing it in front of them. But they're blinded by pride. They're blinded by uh, the lust, the greed of life and the flesh. Christ offers them abundant and eternal life. The sad reality that everyone must face, no matter if we turn it to, to our world, And we say that that the same thing is going on, the same condition of the human heart is going on. That if anyone is going to actually sincerely and honestly look at Jesus and and, uh, try to weigh his claims in terms of evidence, the sad reality is that everyone, uh, whether a prideful atheist or a sensual hedonist, they will have to face the reality of death. The uh, atheist philosopher that I quoted in the beginning, Bertrand Russell, when he reached the end of his life, Uh, He said that he ultimately found his own views quite incredible, and I don't really know what the answer is. He went on to say that death is philosophy's only problem. Death has a way of bringing people to certain kinds of realizations that they're not squaring with the ultimate truth of reality. But in our world, what has happened? We've successfully been able to push death to the margins of society, keep it out of our minds, being able to ignore it largely, which makes people comfortable in their pride. And then there are those who would say that there's no way you can know anything for certain. You can't be absolutely certain about anything. So really all that you can do is live your life for as much pleasure as you can get. Ignorance is bliss. Let's put that claim to the test. Ignorance is bliss. Let's take a look around and see, uh, the, take a look at the people who have the most opportunity to live according to their desires and see how blissful, how joyful they are. See, we know even before we begin to examine it that that kind of claim doesn't even need to be tested. I read about a man who was, um, he's been on some of these lists of the 10 most Uh, the 10 wealthiest people in the world. He's been on those kinds of lists before. We're talking billions upon billions upon billions of dollars. And uh, he became a Christian. 
And he said that the worst day of his life was the day that he realized there was nothing in the world that he could not buy. That was the worst day of his whole life. Why? Because he realized how far that feeling was from true joy. We could go right on down the line. We could give example after example after example of people who came face to face with the very best that this world had to offer and they turned the other way in shame and despair because they realized it's not a, it's not a pot of gold. It's scorpions and stones. And then here is Jesus attempting to lift our eyes up from the earth. And attempting to bring us to our attention a heavenly reality saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But they are bound by their pride. They are bound by their sensuality. They think that Jesus means the earthly temple. Bound to the earth. Unable to see heavenly realities and eternity. There's one of our very own people, Nicholas Walterstorff, Dutch Philosopher, so I guess I should say one of your people. I guess I can't claim him. He said this When we have overcome absence with phone calls, winglessness with airplanes, summer heat with air conditioning, there will abide two things with which we must cope the evil in our hearts and death. What sign do you perform? they asked of Jesus. His answer was the one sign that will answer every single question that has ever been asked about meaning and purpose and destiny. The conquering of death. The conquering of the one problem that at, with which everyone must square. Conquering of death. In terms of the Christian gospel and the Christian worldview, only the answers that Jesus provides can correctly and consistently answer these deepest questions. Uh, These categories come from apologist Ravi Zacharias, but I, I agree with them wholeheartedly. He says the four deepest questions anyone can ask and anyone can search for answers for are in these are these four origin, meaning, morality, destiny. Origin. Where did we come from? How did we get here? Jesus not only answers that relative to ourselves, but he answers it relative to himself. He is the one who created all things. He is the originator of all things. Meaning, why are we here? What is the point of this life? Other worldviews cannot ultimately answer that. Jesus answers it by saying, we glorify God and we enjoy him forever. And we give him our lives. Morality. What is right and wrong? How do we know what's right? How do we know what's wrong? Jesus tells us that God is the standard of goodness. That he is the one who must be obeyed. That he is the one who makes the rules. Destiny. What happens when we die? There's the answer that Easter gives. The resurrection of the dead. Why Jesus? Because he answers all of those questions, not only in a way that makes sense in and of itself, but all of his answers correspond to one another. It's a perfectly consistent worldview and system of belief. It's superior to all of the other ones. None other can compare. Faith is not a blind jump in the dark. It's a confidence and a trust in the person of Jesus Christ, a resting in his power. 
In him we have a savior unlike any other. In him we have an answer that you can find nowhere else. This is what faith is. Trusting, holding, believing in Jesus. There's reason that's introduced. We have to know what Jesus claimed. We have to know what he taught. We have to know what what the gospel is. And then there's an assenting to its truth. But then when we uh, know it and we assent to its truth, we trust in Christ. We trust in the person of Christ and we rest in him. And then it's, I, I found this quote this week. Faith in Christ brings together our minds and our hearts in a commitment of love to him. Mind and heart working together in a commitment of love as we rest in Jesus Christ. So when Jesus actually rose from the dead, bodily and forever, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And there we find Jesus' answer for why he has the authority to tell us how we can relate to God. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Christ, transforms our view of the body, worship, and spirituality. That's what the resurrection does. And why Jesus, and why it is true that Jesus can claim this kind of authority. And why the answers he gives are far superior to any other set of answers. Jesus teaches us that, in the resurrection, that our bodies matter to God. And also that they become not a hurdle to worship, but the very center of worship and spirituality. See, other faith systems, uh, there's basically two main ways that they can go regarding the body. Uh, The body is often a hurdle to being with God. And so the body needs to be uh, literally mauled and brutalized in order to enter a temple to appease a deity. Or the body is something from which you must escape. There must be this, this sequence of, sort of spiritual karma that eventually you escape from the body and you're free of this lower bodily existence. But Jesus shows us that bodies matter to God and he brings our bodies into communion with God and he makes them the center of worship and spirituality, transforms the way that, uh, that most of the people of the world would have thought about those things uh, from even the beginning of history. So Jesus teaches us about the importance of it in his own body, and then as our own bodies are united to his in the resurrection. So this brings us back to the questions of origin and destiny. God created the body, and he called it good. Christ has redeemed our bodies and he will make them good once again. Other religions will say that a body must be destroyed before you enter the temple. Jesus tells us that the temple must be destroyed to show us the value of our bodies. So Jesus exalts the body even as he gives up his own body, as he gives it up for us. He destroys the earthly temple so that he might enter the heavenly one to offer a sacrifice on our behalf. See, in Christianity, you have the entire process of communion with God reversed. And this is why the Christian gospel is superior to all other faith systems, because it teaches us about those things, teaches us about love and justice and forgiveness and evil and good, because it begins with redemption. It begins with redemption. That's the first step. You must be redeemed. You must be forgiven. 
You must be reconciled to God. And from redemption then comes holiness. Holiness proceeds from God's redemption of you. And then from holiness comes worship. Redemption to holiness to worship. The process is reversed in other systems of thought. You must worship the God you're trying to appease. The God you're trying to impress. You must worship him so that you might attain holiness. So that at the end you might possibly achieve salvation. Jesus reverses all of those. And he brings right to the middle of it. He brings our bodies. And the resurrection of the body. He says that is the place where worship exists. That is the place where true spirituality exists. Because redemption begins with Christ. And he gives us the holiness without which we will never see the Lord. The fascinating thing is that Jesus does this while condemning our earthbound desires and mentalities. He lifts our eyes to heaven. He lifts our eyes up from the earth. Destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it again. This was his sign to conquer death. This was substantiating his claim to authority, saying that he will pass through the judgment waters of death, that he will be raised again, and that he will be able to give all those who believe in him new life, and that from his body, he gives a center of worship and spirituality that had never been conceived of before, and that we, in our bodies, we become the temple of the true and the living God. What a wonderful, wonderful promise, wonderful truth that we have. Why Jesus? Because faith in Jesus is reasonable. It's rational. It's right. And it's true. In our Savior, we have the answers to the questions you'll find nowhere else that are true in and of themselves, that correspond to each other in a way that is truthful. It's reasonable. It's rational. It's it's rational. If you look at all of the claims, all of the evidence of Jesus, as he, as he set before us in the Gospels, we see that nowhere else will you find these answers. So take comfort in that. Take comfort in that. In a world which sort of assumes that he's on a level playing field with all the other great leaders. I, was, uh, I ran into an, an old friend this week that uh, I would have coffee with when I was a pastor in the city. And uh, I was kind of chewing on all these things and just randomly ran into him on the street and and it's, Alan, how you doing? And wonderful man. Re- really, really love him a lot. Pray for him. And uh, I was chewing on all these things, what I was going to say tonight. And so I just had an opportunity to share, share Christ with him. And talked about these things, origin, meaning, morality, destiny. And he, and he came back and he said, you know, you're Jesus. Uh, he was a great man. And there's so much great that we can learn from him. But I know that he, uh, he's not, you know, he's, he's not a Christian We've had many talks like this before. But he said, your Jesus is a great man. And out there, you'll kind of find that. But the truth is that Jesus stands far above any other system of belief, any other faith. And it's reasonable, it's rational, it's right, and it's true. He's the Son of God. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is the answer. Come to him. Believe in him. Rest in him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the gospel of hope. The resurrection of the dead. Father, we thank you that even when we see those pass on from this life, that they are 
taken up into the presence of their Savior. And we know that their bodies, when they are lowered into the ground, remain united to Christ. And they await the final day when they will emerge from the dust to be reunited with their souls, fit for eternity. What a great, wonderful, and blessed hope. Thank you for our Savior, our Jesus Christ, who is reigning now at your right hand, always and forevermore, until the last day. We rest in him and look to him for all things. It's in his name we pray. Amen.